Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot in 20. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on with Kevin Sir. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. President says he wants to buy Greenland again, but can he do it? It all comes as the president sets ahead to the G7 later this week as chatter about a potential recession continues to dominate the discourse on Wall Street, Main Street, and the ongoing saga with China. We're going to dive into all of that with a special panel. Lauren Claffey, Republican strategist, managing director at Hamilton Place Strategies, and Kristen Hahn, Democratic strategist, Caesar at Rock Solutions, and former Blue communications director. But before we get to all of that, we have a very special guest, 2020 presidential candidate, best-selling author, and activist, Marianne Williamson, fresh off of Bloomberg Television. She's here. Marianne, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And you just recently crossed the donor threshold to qualify for the third Democratic presidential debate. Now you've got to get a certain number of polls. Yeah, you're supposed to get 2% in four polls. So we'll see. When do the polls come out? Well, you never know. It's kind of like every day you kind of wait. There's a poll (laughs) coming out. You also wonder, who are these people being polled? And I've heard so many people say, well, I was polled, but they didn't ask your name. They didn't mention your name, which, of course, is problematical. So if you don't qualify for the debate, are you going to drop out of the race or are you in for the foreseeable future? No, I'm, I'm in this race as long as I feel that there is an audience. Uh, people are listening. My words are landing. I have something meaningful to say. It's having an influence. No, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm here for a reason. So, so you're in. Clear. You're in. All right. So there's been a lot of talk, especially today. I was <clears> at the White House earlier this morning. And then... The talk is it's still about whether or not there's going to be a recession. President Trump essentially, for his part, later in the day, came out, talked to reporters and says the economy's doing well, no need to worry. How would you, President Marianne Williamson, avert a financial collapse should you become president of the United States? Well, I don't buy that we're necessarily on the verge of a quote-unquote financial collapse, and I certainly wouldn't talk that way. I wouldn't say something as ridiculous as what the president said, which is, we're doing great. I wouldn't say that. I would have a far more sober and, and honest appraisal of what is happening, but neither would I be panicking, because I don't think at a moment like this we need people to panic either. Uh, there are signs that could point to recession, but it's not inevitable. And what I would be concerned about economically has to do with the fundamentals of our economy. I think part of the problem is that the president is so, it's almost like, it's almost like King George and his whims 
You know, it's like, what's the king going to do Tweets. today? Yeah, and his, yeah, you don't run an economy or any other aspect of the U.S. government, according to presidential tweets. But unfortunately, now we do. Marianne Williamson is here. She is a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. We were talking a little bit about this on Bloomberg Television earlier, about the idea of tariffs and whether or not they're a good tool to utilize in negotiating, <laughs> in negotiating trade deals with China, for example. Your thoughts on tariffs? Well, I think that the idea that uh, tariffs are in the presidential toolkit is not unreasonable. But as we know with this president, he, he uses the instruments that are at his command. Even when one might say, well, using them isn't so awful. He uses everything like a blunt instrument. He doesn't have any sense of nuance. He doesn't have any sense of proportionality, it seems to me. The place where I do think the president um, has a point that is legitimate, it has to do with standing up to China. That I do not disagree with, and I think it was overdue and it was time. But I think that there are other ways to do that. And I think that the idea of companies going over there, giving away so many uh, of their secrets in exchange for their own profits, when some of those secrets, you know, we all know, well, they can't give away military secrets. But we're living at a time where it could be argued that any technological uh, availability, or certainly a lot of it, is ultimately a security issue. So that's where I think that we should have started. Uh, but of course, he didn't want to cause any problems for his good friends. It's been fascinating to watch the protests in Hong Kong and, and really how that's really playing out uh, with President Xi Jinping and, and the impact that that's having on President Xi's uh, domestic uh, regime. Well, I my heart is so moved by those people. You know, I'm old enough to remember Tiananmen Square. The level of courage that it takes for people in Hong Kong to be protesting the way they are. And, of course, there's a lot of talk right now about this British consulate uh, that went into mainland and they haven't heard from him. These people, as we know, can be beyond tough. They can be brutal. And my heart is, you know, th these people are in my prayers. I hear your tone about Hong Kong and I contrast it with the tone coming from the White House. There's been some criticism of the administration even amongst Republicans that I've spoken to, that the president hasn't taken as aggressive of a, a support stance for Hong Kong. Well, this president isn't known for his love of democracy, and he isn't known for his love of human rights. The president doesn't seem to have any visceral taste for democracy. So this is not someone that, uh, about whom I'm shocked or surprised that he's not even making a comment to say these people are trying to uphold democratic values, and we in the United States should always be on the side of that. Marianne Williamson's here. She's 2020 presidential candidate, best-selling author and activist. You know, I, I told you this when we were in between TV and radio, but I, when I was researching for this particular interview and I went down like any other reporter, millennial reporter, the YouTube wormhole. And I was watching some of your appearances on the Oprah Winfrey show, uh, including an appearance after 9-11 in which you spoke, I believe it was that month, about Islamophobia in America. Uh, and that show really had an impact uh, on the country. And I'm curious from your vantage point now as you run for president and as you travel the country and meet uh, with, with voters, but also as you navigate this political climate, just what has surprised you the most from being a, a presidential candidate as you reflect <coughs> back on those early Oprah Winfrey appearances? I won't say that it surprises me, but I will say that it moves me how good people are and how much people do care 
And how much smarter and more noble the average American seems to be than the political establishment seems to have any idea. There are far more people who love in this country than who hate. The problem is that those who hate, hate with conviction today, and they've become politicized. And this is a very dangerous phenomenon whenever you have large groups of people who politicize around hatred, bigotry, racism, etc. What we need to do now is to harness all the goodness, the decency, the nobility, the uh, the compassion, the sense of justice and love for our democracy of so many people. That inspires me. I feel when I speak of that, I'm heard. People are ready for that, and that's what my campaign Your represents. career really is the American dream. I mean, here you are. You become this best-selling author. You travel the country. You give these these speeches, or uh, speeches is the, are the, is the wrong word, uh, but but you, you, get, you host these engagements. Uh, and now you find yourself in a party that, and we, and we talk about this virtually every other day, about that, that is the tension, the democratic socialists, the capitalists, the centrists. Are you a capitalist? <clears throat> yes, I'm, uh, I've, uh, yes, I'm a capitalist. I believe in capitalism with a conscience. Capitalism mm. must reclaim its moral core. I am not someone who believes that capitalism is inherently amoral. But I believe that over the last 40 years, there is an almost virulent strain of capitalism that is immoral, that has placed stockholder value, short-term profits and fiduciary responsibility for stockholders alone, at the expense of the other shareholders, the other stakeholders, the workers, the, the the environment, the community. You know, I'm old enough to remember a time, and I'm not romanticizing the past, but there was a time when I was growing up that the American corporation was expected to care, where if someone had worked for the corporation for decades, the corporation was expected to care whether or not that person had a dignified retirement. Now, when people like Jeremy Grantham started talking, Ray Dalio started talking, what has happened recently with this business roundtable. Right. I think Jamie people, Dimon, chairman mm -hmm, of the business roundtable. Some people clearly have gotten the message. They're not stupid. They will either self-correct or you're going to have a younger generation that's going to storm those ramparts. You know, they're going to storm the Bastille because you have millions of younger people now who are saying, well, what am I supposed to be so scared of about socialism, the free health care or the free college? <clears throat> and are saying, what has global capitalism ever done for me? So I believe that capitalism can correct and, and it must now. It, there is, there's no more, no more time to waste, guys. And uh, that is what I believe. I believe that capitalism can. You know, it, 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 capitalism is very good at, at wealth creation opportunities. But unfortunately, over the last 40 years, those wealth creation opportunities have been limited to a very, very small purview and very, very uh, small number of Americans. And that is not right. Coming up, I'm going to ask you about your policies, the Department of Peace plan that you unveiled earlier this week. Also about reparations. Everyone's talking about reparations now. It is it is fully now into the democratic uh, consciousness of the democratic apology, uh, democratic platform. I don't even policy. I don't I, word word salad. All right, Marianne Williamson stays. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio. You can download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. 
at Stiefel. It's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm joined here in studio. She's been so generous with her time. Marianne Williamson, 2020 presidential candidate, best-selling author and activist. And you, Marianne, were at the African-American Chamber of Commerce earlier today talking business, talking business policies, and talking about reparations. So in layman's <coughs> terms, to folks who are unfamiliar with this policy, what is it? Because it's more than just writing a check to every African-American individual, every African-American. Well, it's the idea of money that would be dispersed over a period of 20 years, and it would be for the purposes of economic and educational renewal. The idea of reparations is different than the idea of race-based policies. So there's this general consensus and understanding that there is an economic gap, a serious economic gap, that began at the end of the Civil War and that has has, has not only continued, but that at various times in our history, when there has been an accumulation of black wealth, there have been state and local uh, efforts that have actually thwarted those efforts. Therefore, there is a general consensus, and I believe this is a very pregnant moment, that something is owed, just like after World War II. Germany paid $89 billion in, uh, in reparations to Jewish organizations. Now, even though this doesn't mean the Holocaust didn't happen, it has gone far towards establishing reconciliation between Germany and the Jews of Europe. Marianne Williamson here, Democratic presidential candidate, best-selling author and activist. On the issue of reparations, what do you say to folks who say, well, hey, hey, hey wait a minute, this, this isn't, this doesn't mesh with, with maybe, maybe they, they, folks are saying, you know, I, I, I believe in equality. I believe that African-Americans should have every right as every American, but the idea of, of some type of reparation <clears throat> system just doesn't doesn't connect with them or doesn't click with them or they don't understand it? Well, as I was just saying, there's a history here. And I don't find, it's not my belief or my experience, that the average American is racist. I don't. But I do think the average American is woefully undereducated about the history of race Mm. in the United States. So to the person who might have said what you just said, I have found that when I then respond by pointing out that the first enslaved people were brought over here in 1619, that slavery then existed for 250 years, that when slavery was abolished in 1865, there were between four and five million enslaved people. Then there was another hundred years of institutionalized violence against black people. So you actually point out to people, we're talking 350 years of institutionalized violence against black people. You're talking about an economic gap that existed then, that continued to exist. And uh, what I find in the whitest states in America, people stand up with massive applause in Iowa, stand up with massive applause in 
in, in New Hampshire, people understand whether it has to do with the Jews uh, being paid reparations after World War II or Ronald Reagan in 1988 signed the American Civil Liberties Act. That's right. Where every surviving prisoner from the Japanese internment camps were given between twenty and $22,000. So we're living at a time, and this has been true since the mid-20th century, the idea of, of economic restitution from one person or people who has wronged another is not a fringe idea. And it's an economic stimulus, by the way. Remember, this money is going into people's lives, whether it has to do with education, whether it has to do with historic black colleges, whether that's it has what to do I wanted to, It's money that stimulates. That's what I wanted to, to just, you know, and, and, and that's what the point that I wanted to hammer home here is that you're not saying the government's going to write a check to every no. black person in America. You're saying that you're, over a 20-year period there would be an investment Absolutely. into af- predominantly African-American well, communities or however... It would be, the, the, the people on this council would be themselves successful black entrepreneurs, be successful uh, scholars on the topics of uh, on the topic of reparations, obviously a very carefully chosen uh, 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 reparations council. Then there would be the stipulation, the oversight from the U.S. government would be purposes of economic and educational renewal. But within that, if I owe you money, I don't get to tell you how to spend it. So this council might say has to do with uh, wealth creating opportunities, whether it has to do with capital investment through chambers of commerce. It might have to do with historical black colleges. Then they get to decide, is it Cleveland? Is it Detroit? Is it Indianapolis? Is it rural America? Exactly. Rural America, wherever that is for them to decide. And, you know, moral, uh, there's a great moral power in reparations because there is an inherent mea culpa. It, it, it is an acknowledgement of a debt that is owed, a wrong that was done, a debt that is owed, and the willingness of, of one people to pay that debt. So it carries psychological and emotional power as well as economic force. Switching gears. The Department of Peace, this yeah. has been something else that, that, that really you've been known for now, is creating this Department of Peace. You know, I, I studied this. I was, I'm was i going to be honest. I can't lie to you. I was very skeptical when I first heard about this, and I wanted to really understand it. But as I started to look at it, I thought, well, what? I mean, this is soft power. This is using the State Department for all of the positive things that civil servants in the State Department have done for since the creation of, of our country, whether it's lifting up third world countries or the Peace Corps or using soft power to empower communities around the world? Well, first of all, the idea of a Department of Peace goes all the way back to Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. In terms of what the State Department does, you're absolutely correct. But look at the, at the, at the comparison of the resources. You have a $750 billion military budget. The State Department, which is diplomacy, uh, uh, development, and mediation, gets $40 billion. Then within that, the USAID, or humanitarian assistance, is $17 billion. And the people who are actually the peace-building agencies get less than $1 billion. What I'm saying is there needs to be a far more robust actual partnership. The peace-builders should have a, a, a real place at the table of power in determining our national security agenda. You don't just take medicine. You cultivate health. And you don't just endlessly prepare for war. You also proactively wage peace. So I got to press you on this, because what do you say to voters who say, hey, wait a minute, not my what's going on in another country? Not my problem. I shouldn't have to. American taxpayers shouldn't have to pay for that. That's not that shouldn't be something that 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 they have to pay for. 
what I say to that person, they might want to pick up a newspaper every once in a while. You think or log on to Bloomberg.com. Uh, okay. You think what happened in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador isn't your problem? You think what happened in Iraq and the creation of ISIS today isn't your problem? That's just, that's just putting blinders on. We should see large groups of desperate people as a national security risk. Large groups of desperate people are more vulnerable to, uh, to uh, ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces. And then you have a serious problem. So if you think that that's that, that the United States and uh, American foreign policy and any uh, foreign policy or any governmental policy that's public doesn't ultimately reach your private door, you're very naive about what's going on in this world. Marianne Williamson's here. We've only got a couple of minutes left. She is 2020 presidential candidate, just qualified for the donor threshold to qualify for the third Democratic presidential debate, September 12th in Texas, uh, now awaiting the polling data to see whether or not she makes that cut. Uh, she says she's going to stay in or out, whether or not she makes the third debate. She's a best-selling author and activist. I got to ask you this, and, and, and I, I, I'm coming because I, I really want people to hear your answer here because I think it'll, it'll reveal something about you. You know this, right? I mean, you know the critics in the political realm, in the political arena, who don't take you seriously. And they say, you shouldn't run. How does that, how has that motivated you? Uh, or has it motivated you? Well, there has been a purposeful mischaracterization of my personhood, my career, and my beliefs. Um, people have indicated that I, I am anti-medicine, that I've told people to get off their medicine, that I told AIDS patients that their thoughts created their illness, and if they just loved themselves, they would, they would no longer have AIDS, that I am anti-science. These things are simply lies. But they've created a caricature that has been very successful at making many people have serious doubts about me. That's politics. That's how that works. I do understand that that has happened, and I'm sorry that it's happened. But beyond that, if anybody has a problem with this, they have a problem with democracy. There's no – our Constitution says that in order for someone to be president, they have to be – have lived here for 14 years. They have to have been born here, and they have to be 35 years old or older. If the, if the founders had wanted to say that that person had to have been a congressman or a senator or a governor, they would have. But they didn't because they were leaving it to every generation to determine for itself the skill set that they feel the president should have to navigate the times in which we live. I challenge the idea that only people whose careers have been entrenched in the same mindset and the limitations of the mindset that drove us into this ditch are qualified to leave us out of it. We don't just need political mechanics today. We need political vision. You could have the best car mechanic in the world, but that car mechanic doesn't necessarily know what is the road I should take to Cincinnati. And that's what I believe I bring. I believe that my 35 years working very up close and personal with people who are in crisis in their lives and, and, and understanding how to apply the principles that transform crisis into opportunity are the same principles of transformation that this country needs. This country needs get to get back to its values, to its principles, to its mission statement as articulated in the Declaration of Independence. We have to have a deeper commitment to democracy and to humanitarian concerns. Not only that, I will say this, anything less than that, any kind of incremental approach not only will not transform this country at this critical time in our history, 
I don't believe that the same old, same old political conversation will defeat Donald Trump. Marianne Williamson, Democratic presidential candidate, best-selling author and activist. And we have something in common. Our grandmothers, we both called them Mimi. Uh, so we have that in common. Today and I hope been... I'll be called Mimi someday by a grandchild of my own. <laughs> and uh, she would, my, my Mimi would have celebrated her birthday today. Thank you so much for coming in. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.